any kids kindergarten through fifth grade, you can make your way to your back, the back and find your instructor back there, K through two, we'll head up to the blue room, third through fifth to the library this morning. Would you take your Bible with me and turn to the book of Ecclesiastes? Ecclesiastes, we're going to be in chapter nine, the second half of chapter nine this morning. Ecclesiastes chapter 9, we'll be looking at verses 11 through 16. If you don't have a copy of the Bible, there are copies back there on the table right behind the door. Feel free to grab one of those, uh, pick one of those up, and uh, read along with me as I read in a moment. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, there are paperback copies in the back there. You can pick those up uh, and take those with you. That's our gift to you if you don't have a copy of God's Word or if you need a new copy Feel free to grab one of those. Again, our gift to you. Ecclesiastes chapter 9, we're going to begin in verse 11 this morning. Verse 11 and read through verse 16. Solomon, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes, Again, I saw that under the sun the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor the bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. For man does not know his time. Like fish that are taken in an evil net, and like birds that are caught in a snare, so the children of man are snared in an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. I have also seen this example of wisdom under the sun. And it seemed great to me. There was a little city with few men in it. And a great king came against it and besieged it, building great siege works against it. But there was found in it a poor, wise man. And he, by his wisdom, delivered the city. Yet no one remembered that poor man. But I saw that wisdom is better than might. Though the poor man's wisdom, though, though the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard. This text this morning is a continuation of what we saw last week. What we saw in the first part of chapter nine in Ecclesiastes. If you were with us last week, we drew the conclusion at the end of our time together. Go back up the page, look at verses seven through ten. We drew a conclusion out of these verses that those who are in Christ, those who are in Christ have the approval of God and are free to participate in God-approved activity. So when the preacher says, when Solomon says in verse 7 of chapter 9, go eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do, he is saying those who are approved by God now are able to and freed to participate in God-approved activities, and he lists these. We see two of them in verse 7, and then verses 8, 9, and 10, we see three more. The God-approved activities are eating joyfully, drinking merrily, celebrating enthusiastically, loving undividedly, and working heartily. At first glance, this doesn't look like a very spiritual list, but the preacher wants to shift our attention away from, from things that we sometimes as a culture say are spiritual, 
and onto the small activities and daily life. And so we see this list, eating joyfully, drinking merrily, celebrating enthusiastically, loving undividedly, and working heartily. And so as we move towards the end of chapter 9, we see the importance of staying small, slowing down, embracing anonymity. I'm going to say that word a lot today. I hope I, anonymity, anonymity, anonymity. Okay. Which gives us then the ability to move back up the page to that list of approved activities. The list of God-approved activities that we've seen must be accompanied by a comprehensive understanding of Jesus' work on your behalf. That's the starting point. That's the foundation. You must be in Christ for these things to to be spiritual realities. To participate in God-approved activities must begin by being approved by God. And then these things eating joyfully, drinking merrily, celebrating enthusiastically, loving undividedly, and working heartily, these things flow out of the understanding of Jesus' work on your behalf, which approves you before God. So, we get real practical. The preacher gets real practical in the second half of chapter 9. He gets real practical, and what I think that he wants to communicate here is that if we struggle with the God-approved activities, then there are some steps that we can take. It begins with truly believing that we are approved by God, but then take some practical steps, Solomon says. If you struggle to eat joyfully, if you struggle even to sit down around the dinner table with your family and with others, if you struggle to celebrate enthusiastically, man, if you're forgetting your kids' birthdays, if you, if, you, if you struggle to love undividedly, if your loves are being torn between your spouse and a hobby or something like that, if you are struggling to work heartily, if you go to work and just grind it out and don't view it as something that is made to and intended to glorify God, then the practical advice at this, in the second half of chapter 9 is, is for you. Now, at first glance, maybe you're thinking, well, what does that mean? How, are, how do we get there from, from what we see in verses 11 through 16 in chapter 9? We'll get there. But three things I think that we see, and we'll unpack these three things this morning and then draw a few conclusions. The three things that we see here are slow down, stay small, and embrace anonymity. So, the first, slow down. Slow down. Again, if you're struggling to live into these God-approved activities, the first step, I think, is to, be, to slow down. Look at verse 11. The first part of this verse. The, Solomon writes, Again, I saw under the sun, the race is not to the swift. We don't even need to go past that point. The race is not to the swift. Now, this phrase doesn't make sense to us immediately. Of course, it's the one who is the fastest who wins the race, right? And Solomon says, no, and you know this to be true. You've observed similar things in your own life. Take, for example, uh, this year's NBA Finals. Anyone watch the NBA Finals this year? 
No, one person. One person watched the NBA Finals. Two people, three people. Great. Okay. So this, meta, this, this uh, uh, analogy is going to fall completely flat. I'm going to go with it anyways. If you watch the NBA Finals, which three of you did, <laughs> you know that one of the teams that was playing in the Finals has been really dominant for the last several years, the Golden State Warriors. So, uh, but when we got to the NBA Finals... Uh, they were playing the Toronto Raptors. Now, on paper, I think you probably won't argue this with me, but whatever. That's fine. Go with it. The Toronto Raptors, uh, on paper, were a lesser team than the Golden State Warriors at full strength. Uh, the Golden State Warriors obviously had more experience. They'd been to the final several years in a row. They had more talent at each position. But if you paid attention, you saw that Golden State had a few very key injuries and uh, that things didn't necessarily go their way, and they wound up losing to the Raptors. This is what the preacher wants to share with us at the end of verse 11. He says, but time and chance happen to them all. The race is not to the swift. Time and chance happen to them all. If you're in NBA Finals, and you have a few key injuries, and even though you might be the dominant team, Time and chance may happen to you, and you may come up short. We like to think that the best team wins. We like to think that the best team wins, but it's not always the case. Sometimes the underdog capitalizes on hard times that the better team has fallen on. So, when the preacher says that the race is not to the swift, what does that communicate to us? He's taking into account the end of verse 1, time and chance happen to them all. What does he tell us that we should do? The application of wisdom, and which is a theme that we've seen throughout our time in the book of Ecclesiastes, continues to be important. Wisdom tells us to do something radically countercultural in 2019 in America. That's to slow down. Why should we slow down? Because the race isn't to the swift. We should slow down because an impractical pace of life prevents us from living into the God-approved activities listed in verses 7-10. through 10. Okay, so we need to make a distinction here because we need to begin to talk about our own lives and begin to apply this truth. This is intensely practical, so we need to bring it back and begin to apply it to our own lives. So let's make some distinctions and get some definitions in front of us. David Murray wrote a book last year. He's an Old Testament seminary professor, and he wrote a book called Reset, Living a Grace-Paced Life in a Burnout Culture. And I found Murray to make a really helpful distinction in this book. A distinction between life situation and lifestyle. Life situation and lifestyle. Murray says that life situation refers to things that are outside of our control. Things that happen, time and chance really. Things that come upon us as a result of living life under the sun, like the preacher in Ecclesiastes says. In this world, there are things that pop up that we don't have any type of control over. And we may or may not be prepared for them. And our lives then change because of them. 
Our lives are forced to speed up or slow down to match the uncontrollable realities of life under the sun. On the other hand, so you've got life situation over here, but then on the other hand, you have lifestyle. And these are things that are results of our internal and external choices. Things that you resolve, that you have personally, personal goals, and then things that you decide to give yourself to throughout the course of the week. Lifestyle is internal and external choices. Things that we can make a conscious effort to change. It's our decision to start or stop these things, to live into a particular lifestyle. So life situation is what you're thrown into as a result of what's going on under the sun. And lifestyle is what you choose to live like and give your energy and time to. Now there's some overlap here. Don't get me wrong. There's some overlap. This isn't a perfect system by which you can begin to categorize everything, put it in neat little lists, and then everything works out just perfectly. But it begins to give us a a helpful understanding. And if we feel like we're operating at a pace that is completely impractical, we can begin to maybe put some things in different columns and see, hey, what is a life situation that I find myself in that's outside of my control? And what are some things that I have given myself to that may need to be renegotiated in my own heart? Again, the distinction between life situation and lifestyle is important for us because we tend to think 21st century Americans, we tend to think that we should be free to live how we want, whenever we want, and when unforeseen situations arrive and impose upon our lifestyle choices, we grow frustrated. We want to make our life what we want it to be. We want to build our own little kingdom and make it look really nice in the way that we exactly want it. And so then when the uncontrollable happens, we're overwhelmed, we're unprepared, and we're unhappy. But the truth of what Solomon communicates here in verse 11, the very first clause, so that under the sun the race is not to the swift, it's dramatically uncomfortable. Really anything that Solomon lists in verse 11. The battle's not to the strong, the bread's not to the wise, riches to the intelligent, favor to those with knowledge. All of those are are, are radically uncomfortable statements that Solomon makes. So, we, though, because we probably don't subscribe to this, create a lifestyle that's so fast-paced that when time and chance happen, there is no margin to absorb it. So, we need to be a people, though, who are prepared and who realize that difficulty and uncontrollability are part of life under the sun, part of life here on earth. We need to acknowledge that reality and to create room in our lifestyle for the uncontrollable. Let me give you a practical example here. You all with young kids, youth sports schedules begin to bleed into our evenings, into our weekends pretty quickly. Some of you, your kids aren't there yet. But you need to begin to intentionally think about how you're going to engage with youth sports as a family. Youth sports, for better or for worse, this is a lifestyle choice. Consider with me that in some instances, this may not be the best for you and for your family. 
And you as the parent need to be the one who makes these decisions, even if your children enjoy sports very much. The race is not to the swift is not primarily a sports metaphor. The race is not to the swift communicates to us through what we've explored already that your kids will learn more from you when you respond or how you respond to situations in your life that are outside of your control. Your kids will learn more from how you respond to the death of a loved one or the difficulties at work or frustrating people or neighbors than they will from their youth sports program. They will learn more about what you, their parents, value when they observe how you respond to these difficulties. The reality, though, is that because we're pulled away from our kitchen tables and onto the soccer field with more and more regularity, this becomes difficult. But, friends, this is formation. And we as parents are called to be the primary disciple-makers of our children. And so we need to observe very clearly what our children are being given to. I'm not saying your kids shouldn't play sports. Don't hear me. The pastor said kids shouldn't play sports. Absolutely not. Go play sports. Go knock somebody out on the football field. It'll be great. But what I am saying, maybe I shouldn't have said that, but what I am saying is that more formation happens for your kids when they observe how you handle things outside of your control than things within your control. So that leads us to, again, more practical. Look at your calendar. Look at your calendar. Does your calendar and does your lifestyle allow for margin? If something came outside, uh, came up outside of your control this week, would you have the margin to sit down, to slow down, and to process that thing? Uh, I think the, the admonition to slow down is one that our culture doesn't like very much, especially here in the upper Midwest. It's a trap that we fall into pretty consistently. We say slowing down and having margin is laziness. But laziness and slowing down are not the same thing. Remember the preacher's discussion a few weeks ago on limits. You can slow down, you can recognize your limits and not be lazy. Our culture is clamoring for us to get more done, to be more productive. Slowing down in your life may seem like an impossibility. It may. And sometimes there are seasons in our lives where these things seem like an impossibility. But it's not. We need to be con- begin to consider the things that are, make up our lifestyle, which are inside of your control, and recognize that the race is not to the swift. The time and chance happen to the, uh, to the fastest racer and that he may not win. I think this is one of the reasons that Paul writes to Timothy, his protege, his disciple in 2 Timothy 4.7. Right in the middle of that verse, he says, I have finished the race. Paul is coming to the end of his life. And he is saying, I have finished the race. Paul isn't concerned with winning. Paul is concerned with finishing. The realization that the race is not to the swift should 
cause us to slow down. Life is not a sprint, but some of us are treating it like it. You're burning yourself out. You're putting in long hours at the office, things that are outside of your control. You're finally reaching retirement, but your health is beginning to fail. You race through school only to find out that you can't get hired in your field. You need to slow down and account for the reality that life under the sun doesn't look like we always think it should. And like the Apostle Paul, we need to think about finishing, not just about winning. The second thing that we observe in our text this morning is to stay small or or the idea of smallness. I think that the, the story in verses 13 through 16 is really impactful. And I want to spend a little bit of time here. There's this small city, Solomon says. It says, there is this little city with few men, and a great king came against it and besieged it, building a great siege works against it. So big, powerful king shows up, and he builds a siege works and besieges the city. Essentially what this means is the king comes, he surrounds the city entirely so that no one can come in, no one can go out, and they can't receive supplies, and so eventually this will provoke a surrender from this little city. He builds structures around the city to reinforce his plan. But then we see in verse 15, inside the city, there was found in it a poor wise man, and he, is, and he by his wisdom delivered the city. I think it's funny what he tags at the end of verse 15 too. Yet no one remembered that poor man. A great king does a really big and impressive thing. A poor man uses wisdom to deliver the city from the king, and no one bothers to write his biography. Now, this is culturally radical, I think. Not, not only for us, but for Solomon's readers as well. Again, Solomon is writing to Israel during its political and economic prominence like, like the nation had never, ever seen in its history. This is culturally radical. We are always being fed the message, and they would have, Solomon's readers would have also been, always been, been hearing this message that bigger is, in fact, better. But what about the Christian life, we ask ourselves? The answer is no, bigger is not better, according to Solomon, according to the preacher. It's the wise poor man, not the great king that the day belongs to. And we ask ourselves the question, why? Why would he bother writing this? Because life isn't just about the next big thing. It's not just about the next conquest. It's not about getting the best new technology or upgrading your vehicle or getting a house with a bigger kitchen. Life is about living into the approved activities that we saw in the first half of chapter 9. The small moments that God created you to enjoy and that point you to him. I think Genesis chapter 11 is, is very telling for us. And I think it intersects with the story here that Solomon tells in chapter 9 of Ecclesiastes. Genesis chapter 11 is the story of the Tower of Babel. The people in Genesis chapter 11, in verse 4, say to one another, Come, 
Let us build ourselves a city and a tower with a top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And this is a big deal. They're all coming together. They're about to do a thing that's big and famous. Tower of Babel. Big and famous. Let's build it to the sky. God then takes a look. And then God confuses their language and disperses the people over all of the earth. And we ask ourselves, why is Genesis 11 in our Bibles? Genesis 11 is in our Bibles, not just to explain why we have different languages. Genesis chapter 11 serves to show that God is God and that we are not. God is big and we are small. In verse 5, of Genesis 11, says that God came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. Even though this was an achievement for men, God had to stoop down and take a look. And we're, we're constantly being drawn to the next big thing. We've bought in the idea, again, that bigger is better, just like those constructing the Tower of Babel. They wanted to build something so big that it would rival God and make a name for them. Our culture has bought into this Babel-esque type idea. We have information at the touch or at our fingertips at all the time, which is a little thing in your pocket. You can fly across our country in just a couple of hours, a few hours. We say, look at all the big things we've accomplished as people maybe personally or collectively. We've made a name for ourselves. But Solomon argues that life isn't just about the next big thing. It's not about big and it's not about fast. Life, according to the preacher, is about living a life approved by God, doing God-approved activities, none of which are big, fast, or famous at least on their face. Which leads us into the last thing that we're going to explore this morning, and that's remaining anonymous. This idea has already come out in the first two points, but we're going to highlight it once more. The poor man in verse 15 isn't remembered, right? Yet no one remembered that poor man. No biography being written about this dude. We don't hear his name. We don't even hear the details of how he delivered the city except by wisdom. It's very general. Many people came to know Jesus through the ministry of Billy Graham. Large events where the gospel was proclaimed and preached and praised God for them. Many people heard and responded in the, to the gospel in these settings. But the names that we don't know are the people in the small country churches who faithfully spent years upon years discipling the men and women who heard about Jesus from Billy Graham in a stadium. No one's writing those biographies. Small, small churches, small people. The Christian life is a life that's okay with remaining anonymous. Again, that's not something that we really buy into. We don't really like that. Giving our lives to, lead, uh, to something small and often overlooked will not lead to people knowing who you are. 
We have to ask ourselves the question, are we okay with that? Are, are we genuinely okay with being anonymous? Are we okay with little or no recognition? Are we okay with the simple and the small and the overlooked? Maybe you're not interested in people knowing who you are, but maybe you're interested in being associated with people who have a name. Maybe you're reading a certain book or watching a particular TV show or buying a certain car. There's an episode of Seinfeld where George was convinced to buy a car just because John Voigt was the previous owner. Not the car that he wanted. Google John Voigt later. We fill rooms with autographed memorabilia because it gets us close to someone whose name matters. Our culture suggests that without a name that's known, you can't really matter. But that's disputed in our text. The poor wise man has no name, and yet he delivers a city from the plot of a great king. The battle is not to the strong, Solomon says. Don't get me wrong, names are important, and maybe you find yourself in a position where your name is an important name in, a, in your company or in the community. But again, when our culture says that in order to matter, people need to know your name, we not, must, as the local church, reject that. And when we reject that, we must not go to cling to another person whose name can bring us notoriety. We must proclaim, first and foremost, and only, the name of Jesus. John the Baptist, in John chapter 3, verses 28 through 30, says this. He says, you yourselves bear witness that I said, speaking to a crowd, he said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. John the Baptist knew that it wasn't his name or his voice that needed to be heard. It would be a silly and strange thing to go to a wedding and care more about the man of honor than it would be the groom and the bride. But the name of Jesus and the voice of Jesus is what needed to increase. John the Baptist's name, along with every other name outside of the name of Jesus Christ on planet earth for all of time, must decrease. And so, friends, we can embrace anonymity. We can remain anonymous. We can do small, slow, overlooked things without any need for recognition. That leads us to a, a conclusion. Stay small, slow down, embrace anonymity. Again, these are the practical steps to living God-approved lives. Again, if you're in Christ, we talked about this last week, if you're in Christ, you are approved by God through Jesus Christ. You're approved by God. 
You don't have to earn anything. It's yours. It belongs to you. You are joined with, with Jesus, and all of the benefits that come to him are also and belong to you. If you are in Christ, and because of that reality, you get to participate in that list of God-approved activities, joyfully eating, merrily drinking, enthusiastically celebrating, undividedly loving, and heartily working. And these things feel like a wholesale shift for some of us. And we need to do some careful analysis, though. We need to understand that top-level motivation for living the God-approved life comes from the recognition that we are approved by God in Christ. But once you begin to believe in your heart that you are approved by God in Christ, and even though that, that truth is going to begin to transform you radically, there are going to be barriers. There are going to be things that pop up in your life and that make it really hard to have a meal with joy. They're going to make it really hard to love your spouse. They're going to make it really hard to go to work and to say, this is for the glory of God. And when that happens, then what? You need to apply yourself, discipline yourself even, to be slow, small, and anonymous. So here's a practical takeaway. I'm going to give you three practical ideas and then tie it all together. The first one is, we've talked about this a little bit already, but let's continue to walk through it. Consider your pace of life and start with your calendar. Start with your calendar. Get your calendar out sometime this week with your spouse or by yourself and begin to analyze literally everything on it. You're going to look at me and say, well, you're meddling in my business. And I'm going to say, no, this is not. This is a lordship issue. Is Jesus the Lord of your calendar? Begin to think about all of the events. What are the lifestyle choices? What are life situations? Planning a funeral or taking a sick kid to the doctor. That's life situation. That's outside of your control. You've got to do those things. Lifestyle, weekend shopping trip to Fargo or an extra hour in the office to get some more done. You have to be honest about these assessments. <laughs> Friends, you, if you do this and you're not honest about it, doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. If you sit down and you justify everything that's preventing you from having every mar any bit of margin on your calendar, if you sit down and do that, then this exercise is pointless. Don't even bother. But if you sit down and you make honest assessments about what's going on in your calendar, is this really outside of my control? Am I deceiving myself into thinking that it is? When we think about our schedule, does it reflect more of a desire to win or does it des or a, a, a desire to finish? A desire to win may be seen in how much we've crammed into our week but a desire to finish may be seen in the simple, sustainable, and pace and a pace that your calendar reflects. If you're running kids in and out of, your, out, of, out of the house every night for soccer practice, it's probably not contributing to joyful eating and drinking. If you're doubly booking people, it's probably pretty hard to love undividedly. 
This is a, a biblical theme that comes up over and over again. We see it in someone like the, uh, the rich young ruler. It's easy to start something. It's hard to finish it. He didn't even get the first step down the road with Jesus. Starting the race is the easy part, but finishing the race means constantly evaluating your pace. If your calendar controls you instead of you controlling your calendar, you'll find out it's hard to eat and drink joyfully, to work heartily, to celebrate enthusiastically, and to love undividedly. I'm going to give you a quick aside here because I think this is important. And I think this is a place where secularism has bled into the church in a way that maybe has been unnoticed. A bit of a Trojan horse. When we think about our participation in the local church, which category do we put it in? Life situation or, or lifestyle? I would earnestly argue that where we put that should be under the life situation column. We've treated it, we've begun to treat it like a choice, like something that was subject to all of the other choices that we make. But God has put us here, specifically in Jamestown, for a purpose. If you are in Christ, then it is your prerogative to care about the body of Christ and the mission that God has given to her. Again, this may seem like meddling, but our involvement and participation in the local church should not be seen as subject to lifestyle choices. This is not a negotiable social club with dues that get paid in that basket. This is the people of God who represent your family, bought with the blood of Jesus, adopted into the family of God, brothers and sisters in Christ. And the reason I say that this is a place where secular society has bled into the church is by taking things that we think are up for grabs and negotiable. Oftentimes we think about our secular culture and we think about how, okay, so I'm frustrated that prayer has been removed from schools or I'm frustrated that, that God has been removed for a public discourse. But when the people of God gather together to worship God on a Sunday morning, we frequently are absent. That's secularism. That's dividing our belief from where we walk, how we step, how we move as people. I believe this, this is true, but it's going to have little to no influence on how I act and how I live. So I'd ask you to consider with me to make the local church a fixture in the situation of life that God has placed you. Our participation in the local church is not a lifestyle choice. It's part of the place that God has put us. So, back, back to the, the concluding point here. Slowing down with God-approved activities in view begins in the community of the local church. So, friends, let me, let me say this to you. If you're here this morning and you look at your calendar and you say, I think this is controlling me, I don't know what to do about it, how, how, what's the next step? What is the next step? Consider finding someone here who can be honest with you about your calendar, sitting down, and asking honest questions about life situation, lifestyle, and margin. And this is dangerous. This is dangerous territory. 
And so you're going to say, nope, that's off limits. I'm not going to hand anyone my credit card statement. Our credit card statement tells us a lot about how we live. Would you hand that to someone who you trust in here? But I'm suggesting that when we think that we're so busy that we need to give people we really trust and who value what we say that we value a voice into our lives, what our calendar looks like. I'm not saying that needs to be everybody. I'm not saying we need to put it up on the screen. I'm saying what we need to do is find some people that we really trust, engage with them, and say, can you ask me some honest questions about my life? That's the first thing. Consider our pace. Consider your pace of life. The second thing that I would say in conclusion this morning is consider what you won't do. Consider what you won't do. And here's what I mean by this. What do you feel like in your life is beneath you? What do you feel like in your life is beneath you? Maybe because in your heart, you're not going to get any recognition for doing it. God takes small things and makes them great. Consider Abraham, who had no kids, and God came to him and said, I'm going to make you a great nation. Your descendants will be more than the stars in the sky. What? I don't even have a a child. My wife is past childbearing age. Or consider David. He was the youngest of Jesse's son. He was forgotten and left in the field when Samuel came to anoint Israel's next king. Consider Jesus. He was born in a barn in a forgotten town. As Christians, small and overlooked things need to be part of the equation. Serving our kids, bringing someone a meal who's hurting, sending a text message to church uh, to someone who you met last week in church, asking them how they can how you can pray for them. In fact, friends, I think that the small, the slow, and the anonymous are what most of life is made up of. Largest percentage of what we do is small, slow, and anonymous, and it is the least amount of thing that we give our time and energy and attention to. Do these things joyfully to the glory of God, not desiring to leverage them for big things, but simply being content with where God has you now. The last thing I'll say, and very, very briefly, is consider what experiences you're chasing. Considering your pace of life, consider consider, uh, what you won't do, and then consider what experiences you are chasing. Life experiences are great. Don't get me wrong. They are great. Make memories with your kids. But they can be really helpful. But also consider that the chasing experiences may be keeping you from simple faithfulness where you are in the moment right now. Small, slow, anonymous things. So just those three things. Consider them this week. Discuss them with your spouse, a friend during discipleship with your kids and community group. Consider your pace of life. Consider what you won't do and consider what experiences you are chasing. And while doing so, finally, this will wrap it up to get together today. 
reflect on the life of Jesus Christ again. We should focus as a congregation as often as we are able on the magnitude of the implications of Jesus' life and sacrifice. Big, explosive. The atonement is something that goes and, and, and extends to all people for all of time. Jesus died so that everyone who has ever lived, who has breathed a breath, who has been conceived in the womb, could be saved. That is the, the atonement. That is a big and famous thing that everyone needs to hear about. But consider the setting of Jesus' life. Slow, small, and anonymous. Jesus was born in that small forgotten town of Bethlehem. Jesus grew up in a small town, Nazareth. He spent a bunch of his ministry walking from small town to small town with nothing in between, teaching and eating with small groups of culturally meaningless people. Not kings or rulers or politicians or celebrities, but sick people, slaves, prostitutes, tax collectors, and Samaritans. His disciples were largely uneducated, underprepared, and dense. Jesus hung around Jerusalem, an increasingly irrelevant city in the escalating global political scene. And he spent the first 30 years of his life doing nearly no ministry outside of a temple event when he was 12 that we can see. Jesus faithfully worked as a carpenter, small and slow. He honored his parents. He lived quietly in his community for those 30 years. And though through the sacrifice of Jesus, we are freed to the simple faithfulness that he lived in. Not big, bombastic, Sunday morning, explosive smoke and lights. Not fast-growing, explosive numbers of people. Not our names plastered on billboards and in newspapers and on the TV or internet, but simple, slow, anonymous faithfulness. And don't get me wrong, there are times in history where God has seen fit to grow things exponentially. Use people's names to make his name great. And to do it all very quickly, Acts chapter 2 is an example of this. One of these instances Peter preaches this sermon. We have it recorded in Acts chapter 2. It's probably about five minutes long and 3,000 people get saved on the spot. That's big and it's explosive. And many of you even in this room have, have grown spiritually leaps and bounds over the last couple of years. God has grown even our own congregation in numbers and in depth. God chooses to do that, we're on board. But simple faithfulness in all of it, embracing the small, embracing the slow, embracing the anonymous, will remind us that it's not the bigness of our vision, it's not the speed with which we execute, not the knowledge of our name that gets results. Friends, it's the faithfulness of Jesus that has freed us to live in the small, slow, and anonymous work that God brings our way. Jesus was so faithful. He saw all that his heavenly Father required. And he lived in line with it. 
Friends, if we trust Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins, we are joined with Christ, and the Holy Spirit comes to strengthen us, not to do big, explosive things, but the small, slow, and anonymous, the faithfulness that he requires. Where we are unfaithful, Jesus is and was faithful. In him, we are free to live a life of faithfulness, including the small, slow, and anonymous. In Christ, we are approved. We don't need to do those things. If he brings them our way, great. But the simple faithfulness is where we need to live. We're not doing things to get his attention. His eye is on you as his beloved child. And your best is promised to you through him, no matter where he has you today, tomorrow, or the next day. It may be small. It may be slow. And it may be anonymous. Let's pray.